Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, this unspeakable gift. How wonderful. May we always remember, and in our lives, may we proclaim the reality of who he is, that he gave his life. We thank you for the gift of your word, and may your spirit who caused it to be written give us understanding. May he give me the words to say. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Last Sunday we began our study in 1 Peter, which begins as most letters of that time did, by telling us who is writing the letter, to whom it is written, a greeting of some sort, and then thanksgiving, uh, usually for the recipient's well-being. By way of review, the person who writes it identifies himself as Peter. And while a whole host of images may wash over us when we hear that name, Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is one who has been sent by Jesus Christ with a message for these people. As to the person's address, there is no indication that there had been personal contact between Peter and those he was addressing. And yet he does spend a great deal of energy identifying his audience. And as I mentioned last week, one commentator sees this as perhaps one of the most important aspects of this letter. Peter seeks to impress on his readers what their true identity is. And he does so with three categories. That they are elected or chosen, that they are strangers or exiles, that they are scattered, that is, they belong to the diaspora. It is the first one that Peter fleshes out, as it is the foundation of their identity. There is a tension to being a Christian that comes from the reality of being both chosen by God and yet being a stranger or being scattered throughout the world in which we live. And as Peter deals with the reality of suffering for the faith, I think he seeks at the beginning to put down deep roots in the fact of God's action in the past, God's action in the present, and that will continue toward the goal which he has for us. And as we saw last week, this is expressed in Trinitarian terms, uh, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. And yet for the wonder of the fact that we are chosen by God, Peter's readers, and that includes us, were and are strangers in our world, and we are scattered. This is the language that the Israelites, that the Jews, would be very familiar with. But for Gentiles, not so much. For the most part, they've not had the experience of being ripped from their homeland and scattered across the planet. But we are the Israel of God, as Paul tells us in Galatians 6. And so we will, like the Jews have, experience the trials of, ha- of being foreigners, the erosion of identity in our roots, and the enduring slander, enduring slander rather than praise. Um, even though we may live in our homeland, this does not take away from the fact that we are strangers and we are part of the scattering. 
Because we have committed ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, this has not only changed our disposition, but also puts us on the margins of society. Because if we pledge allegiance to Christ, then that allegiance which others might expect from us is not given to them. The fact that Jesus is Lord means that Caesar cannot be Lord. The people who are strangers of the diaspora, there are several temptations that I mentioned last week. The first is to assimilate, to simply say, that's it. I can't live in this tension of being in the world, but not of the world, of being here with my neighbors, but not being one of them. And so there is the temptation to embrace the dispositions and the practices of the surrounding culture. I think Peter writes this letter uh, to stop that from happening, to prevent it from happening. This letter is to tell people how they are to live as Christians. But the other temptation, and I think this is what Peter addresses here at the very beginning, is to question our status before God. If I am a Christian, if I'm a child of God, why am I having these problems? Why is there all of this tension? And that's why Paul begins, in my opinion, or Peter begins, by grounding them in the reality of God's work in their lives, a Trinitarian work. This is where we should always start in our thinking, in our talking, in our living our lives as Christians. It's not to be found in us. The foundation is not in us, but in God's work. The third part of any letter of that time was a greeting. And we see here, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace, which is the basis of God's redemptive work. And peace, which comes from the Hebrew shalom, which was a a common greeting. The two are put together. That is, the basis of God's work and what God's work will do. And as the Old Testament prophets saw it, it was, in fact, the restoring of all things. And Peter says it is his prayer that this is what God will give to them. Today we will look at the fourth part, which was typical of any letter, and that is uh, a thanksgiving. This is found in verses 3 through 12, which is a rather extended thanksgiving, if you wish. But more than that, as it was originally written in Greek, it is one sentence. Uh, all these verses make up one sentence. But there are at least four main ideas that I'd like us to pursue as we look at it today. I think in addition to being a thanksgiving, it sort of introduces the letter to us. Because from now on, Peter will be dealing with, he'll be fleshing out things that he talks about in these opening verses. The first part we'll look at is verses 3, 4, and 5. And it's praise to God for the hope of salvation. Read, follow along if you would. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let me just say as we begin, the identification of God the Father as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is rare. Wherever we find it in the epistles, it's always usually in a doxological context. As the writer, usually it's at the end of a letter, interestingly enough, um, but in some places at the beginning, as the writer is thanking God, is praising God for what he has done. Certainly, uh, 
if you've been listening as Ziv has been reading to us from the Gospel of John, this has its roots in the Gospel. I mean, Jesus is the Son of God, that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter begins here in verse number 3, this phrasing, the first line, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is something we find in other epistles, which would seem to indicate that this had become a traditional form of praise or prayer in the early church. That in public worship, it was not uncommon for people to say, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings up something we talked about uh, earlier in January, how that some people are very uncomfortable with the notion of reading a prayer, that there's a sense that a prayer should be much more spontaneous and uh, that if it's not, then somehow it's formalistic and perhaps cold and dead. Let me just mention some of the things I did back in January, that being modern people, we imagine that we're very capable of praying on our own. And... We, we, we fear that if anybody helps us, if someone assists us, that it's less authentic, it's less us. It, you know, it's, it's sort of mixed because somebody helped us in our praying. Both the Romantic movement and existentialism as it emerged in the 20th century have produced the idea that only, things are only authentic if they come unbidden, if they just sort of flow out of our hearts. And that, that when we pray that way, that that's, that's genuine prayer. Well, as I mentioned uh, when I spoke about this last, uh, Jesus speaks about things that flow out of our hearts. And they're not prayer. Um, In Matthew 12, for out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, in Matthew 15, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, teach us to pray, teach us how to pray, he didn't say, look deep within yourselves. He didn't say, follow your heart. I seem to hear that a lot. Um, He didn't say, just say whatever comes to mind. He understood the question, and in fact, he gave them a prayer. He said, this is how you should pray. I would say, by the way, that even in traditions that reject liturgy, that that say we want our prayers to be spontaneous, if you listen long enough, you begin to find a certain pattern that emerges. That that as human beings, we just tend to do things in a particular way. And we think, well, this is more spontaneous than reading a prayer, when in fact, a person says, but you know, that almost sounds identical to the prayer you prayed yesterday or last week. Um, So... Peter uses what is familiar to him, but I would suggest not only what is familiar to him, but to the church in general, that the people, even though he had never met him, they know this. They've heard this in church when they gather to worship God. Beyond that, what is this that Peter is saying in in this formula that, that he gives? Two things. First of all, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And for someone living in what is now modern day Turkey, where the worship of the emperor was very strong. By the way, it was stronger there because they didn't live that close to Rome. And so they sort of had to prove themselves. Yes, we're, we're honest to goodness, we're great Roman citizens. And so uh, emperor worship actually exploded in Turkey uh, more than it did in Italy. You would expect it in Rome, but in fact, the people in Rome knew what the emperor was like and they were sort of less likely to worship him. It's the people who are in Turkey who've only heard about 
you know, him and they've seen his images. But in their worship, they were to say, Caesar is Lord. That was part of emperor worship. Well, if you're a Christian, you do not say that. You say Jesus Christ is Lord. The second thing is that God is worthy of praise. As we saw last month, at the heart of worship is the fact that someone is worthy. And God alone is worthy of worship, not Caesar. Peter begins his thanksgiving by praising God, and he gives at least three reasons for doing so. That first of all, God acts in mercy. Having made promises to his people in Old Testament times, God has now acted and he acts in conformity with those promises to show his love and compassion. The phrase, by the way, great mercy, is an echo of what we hear in the Old Testament. It reflects Old Testament language. Peter will speak of it again in chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we should praise God because he acts in mercy. Secondly, because he has given us new life. He has given us new birth. The beginning of the Christian life is expressed in different ways in the New Testament, but I think what is most familiar is the idea of the new birth, of being born again or being born from above. It marks a new beginning. I think we're familiar enough with that. I think what we tend to forget is that the new birth expresses something very important, and that is we are not the cause of our new birth. A child does not come into the world on its own. In the same way, we do not have new life. We are not given new birth, something that we do on our own. This is something that God the Father has done. He is the source of life. The source of life is outside of ourselves. So in verse number 23, here in chapter 1, we'll see this in a couple of weeks. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. I'm born again, not because of me but because of what God has done. The third thing that we should praise God for is that believers have a living hope. Having been brought into this new state of existence, having been born again, the question is, where is this going? Peter uses the word hope at least five times in this letter. Here he uses the phrase living hope. And what he intends is not exactly clear. Is it a a hope Uh, of life, or is it a genuine hope as opposed to a false or empty hope? I think it may in fact be both. What is hope? It is the conviction that something will happen in the future. But in the scripture, it is much more than that. It is a confidence that something will happen in the past because there is a basis for that. As Christians, we do not believe in hope in hope. As Schaefer used to say, we don't believe in faith and faith. We don't hope because we hope. There is a basis for hope. Our hope must have a foundation or it is a false hope. And the hope rests in the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as Peter puts it. Just as God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, so he has an inheritance for us. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But let's be clear about something. The future hope has its roots in the past and in the ongoing present. You see, God has given us new birth into a living hope. We have something now that is pointing to something in the future. 
Hope deals with whether or not the life God has given us will continue. Will it continue past my death? Will it continue past what I'm able to observe? Let's say that one of you were to die, I will not be able to observe whether or not that life God has given you is in fact continuing beyond that. But the fact is that life has already begun now. By faith we embrace it, and in hope we see it in the future that it will in fact continue. This brings up what we've seen in Galatians, the already not yet tension of the Christian. Already we have new life, but not yet do we have the fullness and the completeness of what Peter calls the inheritance. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. By the way, Peter's still talking about hope, but he expands in two ways. The first is the word inheritance, a word that means something, I think, quite different for us than what it did in the ancient world. In our time, even if you're in the will, you have to wait for the person to die before you can inherit. The parable of the prodigal son, as it is known, demonstrates that, in fact, heirs already had a right to the property. They didn't have to wait for dad to die. They could, in fact, say, give me what belongs to me now. If we are named in the will, so to speak, in a real sense, what is promised is already ours. There is, I think, a very Old Testament flavor to this. As Israel was traveling through the wilderness from Egypt to Canaan, Moses spoke of where they were going, as the land your God is giving you to possess, as your inheritance. So the word inheritance very much goes back to the promised land, I think, which is a metaphor for what we are hoping for, what we will have when Christ returns uh, the second coming. We need to be careful, however, that we don't think of inheritance in terms of material things. And so Peter says that this inheritance can never perish, can never spoil, can never fade. The English Standard Version has an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. This language clearly makes it, should make it clear to us, that we're not talking about earthly things like silver and gold or other things. The question, though, that one might ask, and perhaps Peter's readers were asking, in light of the suffering that they were going through, will I live to receive the inheritance? Guy and I were laughing about something the other day, that uh, there's something we've been praying about, and, and she asked me, do you think this will ever happen? And I said, yes. She said, when? And I said, um, probably after we're dead. Um, and we do not have children. We've already called dibs on Toby to take care of us in our old age. And so we said, yeah, it'll probably go to Toby. And he'll say, well, what is this? You know, and it's like, well, it's something for Uncle Damon and Aunt Gia, but they're already gone. And so now it's yours. Um, I think that the people to whom Peter is writing, if they have not begun to go through suffering, they are now. And the question is, you know, this inheritance is great, but... <laughs> Am I going to survive what I'm going through in order to receive the inheritance? If you look at verse number five, he says, Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God would protect them and will protect us by his power. At the same time, Peter writes of this being or this coming through faith. 
Um, this indicates that such protection is not automatic. It involves, on some level, our trust in God. Um, but I, I think we would freely confess that God does far more than our faith can hold up to. If God were to keep us only based on our faith, we would be in trouble. But he, in fact, will shield and protect us until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, I think we see here the matter of hope and of, the, of hope in the future rooted in the past and in the present. Peter writes of the salvation that is going to be revealed. He will do so again in verses 9 and 10. We'll look at that in a few minutes. Verses 6 and 7, the testing of faith. Here's the second part of the thanksgiving. And Peter brings out a further aspect of the tension of being a Christian. We've already seen we are chosen and yet we are exiles or we are strangers. We have hope for the future, but faith right now. Now we see we have rejoicing right now, but we also have suffering right now. Verse number 6. In this you greatly hope, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. As we begin, note that Peter does not say a Christian must suffer. Nor, in fact, does he say that his readers must suffer or that they will. Simply, he allows for the possibility of suffering. Again, the ESV has, you have been grieved by various trials. What he does say is that suffering is for a little while. But he doesn't tell us how long a little while is. How long is a little while? How many hours are there in a little while? How many days? How many weeks? Dare we ask how many years are in a little while? To the person who is suffering, every moment may seem like an eternity. In the scheme of things, I think Peter would tell us that suffering, though it may last a lifetime in comparison to eternity, we would say it is just a little while. As Peter writes that the suffering he's talking about comes in the form of trials. When we went through James, we saw in James chapter 1 that he dealt with temptations and trials. And that while they both come from the same root word, and they in fact may come from the same circumstance, what changes an event, if you wish, from either becoming a temptation or becoming a trial is how we respond to it. He tells us to, tells us to count all joy when we are ambushed by trials. When this event happens in my life, I have one of two choices. I can either say, I will stay the course, I will trust that God will stand with me, or I can go back to the default position, I can go back to the old ways, and then that event becomes a temptation. At this point, as Peter writes, he's not talking about that. He's talking about suffering and trials, in which something comes and you make the right choice, but it doesn't go away. And you make the right choice and it's still there. Why do these things happen? They have a purpose. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. 
This ties in with what James said about perseverance. I couldn't help but remember what we read Job saying in Job 23. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Gold is a precious metal, but it generally is mixed with other metals as it comes out of the ground. It needs to be refined, to be purified. This is done through intense heat. I looked this up, by the way, on the internet. Um, You have to heat it over 1,064 degrees Celsius or 1,947 degrees Fahrenheit in order to get gold to the melting point. The impurities rise to the surface and then they are skimmed off. In the same way, our faith must go through a purifying process. Our faith always has impurities. I get a bit tired when people talk about having perfect faith or having enough faith. Our faith is always contaminated and God brings events into our lives so that he can deal with the impurities. We can be awakened to the fact of it and by God's grace, get rid of them. In trials, the possible outcome that Peter has in mind is a purifying of our faith. There is always the other possibility that we will assimilate back into the culture and say, listen, I I can't deal with this tension of being different from everyone else. The phrase at the end, the praise, glory, and honor, I think is what we bring to Jesus Christ when our faith is purified. This brings honor and praise and glory to him. The third point here is in verses 8 and 9. And one writer has called it the hidden presence of Christ. In this introduction thus far, we have seen that the Christian life is one of hope, despite the fact that our future salvation has not yet been revealed. It is one of rejoicing, despite the fact that we may be going through suffering. Now he tells us that it is one of believing, despite the fact that the readers, and that would include us, have never seen Jesus. See, as Peter writes this, as he writes about hope and rejoicing, um, he's not talking about just getting to heaven. It is the hope of seeing Jesus. And before I get to this, I, I must confess to you, I was raised in a fundamental Baptist background, uh, many problems as I look back with them, but you know, I used to hear people back then say things that I don't hear in the church anymore. And that is people would talk about the fact that they looked forward to when they died and got to heaven that they would see Jesus. I don't hear people saying that that much anymore. I think what I hear more is that people just want to get their ticket punched and get into heaven and, and then everything will be wonderful. Now, that's not how Peter sees it at all. His faith is far more personal. If you look at verse number 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter and other eyewitnesses had in fact seen Jesus, but the readers of this letter had not. Yet they loved him. And this goes beyond mere emotion. There is commitment. There is belief. And taken together, we come to see that faith is not some cold, clinical, mental assent, I believe this. It involves love. That faith, I think without love, in fact, is not faith. And beyond that, we are to be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Because of the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. 
This he describes further in verses 10 through 12, the fourth part, and that is the Old Testament, if you wish, and the New Testament, or the prophecies of salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Although it may seem to be off-tangent, there is an important issue that needs to be discussed here. And that is, what are we to do with the Old Testament? How are we to view it, and how are we to use it? Are we to view it as a Christian book, that it was written with prophecies with regard to Jesus and the establishment of the church? And, oh yeah, yeah, you have all those stories about Israel and, and the people of God and all that, but, but ultimately it's, it's a Christian book. Are we to see the Old Testament uh, as a book within its own right, the history of the people of Israel, and to understand what the prophets were saying to them at that place at that time? I think this is how we, in fact, should look at the Old Testament, that we should take it seriously as a historical account, understanding the prophets and their messages to the people of their own time and of their own place. But, you know, even as Peter's writing this, the Jews of the first century kept trying to update the Old Testament. They're trying to read what the prophets said and ask, can these writings be interpreted as applying to us, as referring to us? And here, I think Peter explains in part, and remember, this is, this is Thanksgiving, which is a doxology. He's praising God for what he has done. He explains the, the role of the Old Testament, the place of the Old Testament, and how we are to understand the prophets. And what we find is this. Peter describes what the prophets said from a Christian point of view. Their message, at least some of their message, had a future orientation within their context. Thus, Peter writes, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. And without question, this refers to the coming of Jesus and his work. But then the question is, did the prophets understand what they were saying? And the answer in part seems to be, no, they did not. Thus, they are portrayed as being in dialogue with God. And we do know that some of them talk to God. We've gone through the book of Jeremiah. Um, but again, Peter sees this from a Christian perspective. Um, remember the previous verse, the verses aren't there, but in verse number nine, um, about salvation, um, it's God's gift to his people of the new covenant. And so the prophets of the old covenant are searching out to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. What follows in verse number 12 I find fascinating. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you when they spoke of the things that have been told you now, or now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Prophetic activity is seen as a service, helping God's people, and not only the people of their time, but those of the new covenant. Listen to what Paul wrote to uh, the Corinthians, the first Corinthians 15. I think you're probably familiar with this. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, 
that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. This passage in which Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus appears to be a historical report. And it is. But it is backed up by the Old Testament, by scripture. What the prophets had written, in fact, we have this historical event that happened in Palestine, but centuries before the prophets had written about this. And so this happened according to what had been written earlier. And the spirit who caused them to write what they did is the same spirit who directed the apostles and the other preachers in the first century to preach the gospel. And there seems to be a hint here that Peter was not the one. He had never been to these people in in these provinces in modern day Turkey. Others had preached the gospel to them. And he's saying, listen, the same spirit of God who used the prophets to do these prophets, that's the same spirit who gave these men the words to say when they came and preached to you and you were converted. One more thing at the end. He says, even angels long to look into these things. While angels may have knowledge that we do not, they are not all knowing. In Mark 13, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven. They do long to know more about the unfolding, the fulfilling of God's purposes. In Luke 15, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Among the things that we learn from the example of the prophets is that God's messages oftentimes were meant for others and not for ourselves. Not all of scripture speaks directly to us. Not all of it was written with us in mind. It is true that all scripture is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching. But we are to take care to understand and differentiate those passages written for God's people in general and those written for a specific purpose to a specific people at a specific place and time. Obadiah, if you're familiar with the prophet Obadiah, uh, wrote an oracle concerning Edom. Uh, The details have a strictly local application. Edom no longer exists. Um, If we want to hear a word from God, we will do it correctly when we observe the general principles that are laid out and then reapply them to ourselves. But um, we need to take care here. Um, I remember as a child in Sunday school, we used to have a chorus that we would sing, uh, every promise in the book is mine. I don't know if any of you knew that. Every chapter, every verse, every line. And someone should have stood up and said, no, that's not true. That doesn't make it less the word of God. But we need to be careful and we can learn from the example of the prophets. As I was reading for this a couple weeks ago, particularly this part of Thanksgiving, at one point, not literally, but in my mind, I threw my hands up and said, no more Thanksgiving. I mean, with all this Thanksgiving, I'm, I mean, let's be thankful for nice stuff, uh, suffering, um, Hope, I mean, that's dis. How about let's be thankful for something right now? What Peter touches on as he talks about Thanksgiving here are the tensions that we are confronted by. That we are chosen, but we are strangers. 
hope versus faith and rejoicing versus suffering. The reason I said no more thanksgiving is because it seems so closely tied to the tensions. And who wants tension? Remember Edith Schaefer telling a story years ago that they had a man come to Labrie. He had visited various ashrams in India and was sort of making his way across the world trying to find the truth. And he came to Labrie, a Christian community, and was there for a day. And then at dinner he announced, you all don't have the truth. And he came to that conclusion, he said, because I noticed you, you're... All of your shoulders are really tense. You're, you're really tense, you know, and if you, if you had the truth, you would be more relaxed. Well, Edith really sort of lit into him and said, you bet we're tense, you know. Um, and if she could have this passage, I think she'd say, yeah, because we're living in the already but not yet. Somehow the desire to have a hassle-free life, to have no tension as a Christian, is not biblical. And as Peter is giving thanks, he's doing so for the tension in their lives. I think we could wish for less tension, or perhaps we should wish for more. Um, How are we to make it through the day in the light of these tensions? How do we make it through life? Peter says that we will have trials. Uh, I'm reading uh, a novel by a Japanese author. It's been translated into English called Silence, and it's about the persecution of uh, Japanese Catholics in the 17th century which was very severe and to the point where Japanese Christians could not even smile because if they smiled, people said, you're a Christian. And at one point, one of the characters cries out and he says, why, Deo-sama, have these things, why have you brought these things to us? What have we done? You know, why are we suffering these things? I think he wished for less tension in his life. And Peter says, these trials have a purpose. And they are to get rid of impurities that our faith may be proved genuine. But again, how do we get through the day? How do we make it in the light of these tensions? Well, the foundation is not found in ourselves. It is found in God. And I don't know if you noticed it, but if you look at these first 12 verses of Peter's letter, how often we find members of the Trinity referred to at least 15 times, and I think it's closer to 20, we find references. And let me just go through the list. I'm an apostle, or uh, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, to God's elect, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead who through faith are shielded by God's power. When Jesus Christ is revealed, verse 7, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Verse 11, the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing. When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12, by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. If we don't get the message... Well, let's pray by God's grace we will. Our confidence, our foundation cannot be in ourselves. We cannot say, or we should not say, I'm going to hold on through life in these tensions. I'm going to be elect, and I'm going to be a a stranger. 
part of the scattering, and I'm just going to hold on for dear life. Um, I don't think that's the way to do it. I'm not sure that you will be able to hold on. Our roots, our foundations are in God himself and in what he has done in our lives. So that as we go through trials, as we face the tensions of being strangers, perhaps in our own houses, the places where we work, in our own neighborhoods, rather than saying, okay, just, just grin and bear it, you can take it, you can do this, and say, no, my confidence is rooted in God himself and what he has done. Our goal should not be a tension-free life, but to be rooted in the work of Christ, which God the Father planned before the world was created, and which the Spirit is carrying out in our life now, and we're waiting until the day when Jesus Christ, Christ will be revealed. That, I think, is what we are to do. With this foundation of thanksgiving, Peter will now address these people and tell them, how are you supposed to live with God's people in a tension-filled world? And by God's grace, that's what we'll look at in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Father, we would confess that so often we wish our lives were easier. That just wasn't so much tension. And we would also confess that oftentimes we avoid the tension by, by just simply giving in. Just going along. Just assimilating. Help us to see that our confidence is never to be in ourselves, but in you. And what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do at the end of time. We thank you for your great grace and for the peace that you give. I ask that in the days to come we would think on these things. Not be hearers only, but doers of the word. I thank you for the privilege of worshiping you together with brothers and sisters. May your spirit and grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?